All right, to follow up on last uh, episode with Nor Kyle George, Doc Ali Al Ansari. Uh, yep. And like we were saying last time, you know, these folks are behind the amazing teaching project, The Nine Sided Circle, which is an online Sufi ish community for spiritual practice and self-cultivation um, they give free sunday talks they're available on youtube it's really worth checking out if that sounds at all interesting to you and even if it doesn't because they're those talks have been on an incredibly broad range of subjects and there's really something for anybody that's interested in um self-cultivation philosophy personal development you know um sort of different spiritual orientations and some other stuff that we'll get into, I bet, in this conversation with Mushtaq. So we'll put all that stuff in the show notes, so check that out. But uh, here we go with Mushtaq. We We usually start even when we're just kind of getting in there because you never know when something interesting is going to happen. Okay, so my name is Mushtaq Ali Alansari. And I am a uh, professional troublemaker. <laughs> it's true. It is true. Mushtaq also has a Sufi or perhaps Sufi-inspired. Sufi-ish. Sufi-ish. A renegade Sufi-ish school called the Nine-Sided Circle and teaches on a variety of really interesting topics from super interesting perspectives. That's my opinion, having yeah. spent not a small amount of time hanging out in that space and listening to Mushtaq teach on a variety of these subjects. Um, so I'm really excited to have you here because I have no idea what we're going to talk about. But <laughs> That's we've great, because neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> and they've always been fun. I feel, I feel inclined to think this one will be fun as well. And you you uh, interviewed Kyle, right? You interviewed we Noor. Did. Yeah, so we you interviewed Noor a couple of weeks. You ago. got the better part of our, our team already. <laughs> so Mushtaq, one of the things we have spent not a small amount of time talking about with folks like yourself who uh, work within a martial and let's say broadly speaking, wisdom, tradition, and or philosophical spiritual context is the kind of intersectionality of those disciplines. And is there anything in terms of your time spent working in that kind of space that you feel like is unique to your perspective and your experience that you might want to talk about? I don't know if it's unique. It's probably at least sort of unique in that. So martial arts, I've been doing martial arts since I was a kid. Um, I have rarely had to use it for its first intended purpose. Um, yeah, there was some times in my, my twenties and thirties when I was working as a bouncer where some of it came in handy. But other than that, I find it, you know, you just don't go around beating the crap out of people as a rule. <laughs> That's a good rule. Yeah. Unless you're a sociopath, in which case maybe you do. But Yeah. But no. So what is the other purpose for that? For me, it was using the movements of the arts that I was learning to break down the hip- habitual patterns of movement that I picked up, finding the, the points of... Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, physical amnesia or somatic mm. amnesia and reintegrating those areas of amnesia back into the whole. And that I think is essential. I, I am pretty sure that you can't do the work. That's what we call it, the work, because that, that has no cultural label. Um, you can't do the work in the 21st century without that component. You have to be able to move your body. You have to be able to reintegrate the places of, of um, neurological amnesia that you have developed. And you have to break out of your habitual postures. Right. Do you, and, and how do you find that that work with physical amnesia and habitual posture relates to habits of mind or they, internal behavior? They completely relate. What is, uh, <clears throat> there's an exercise that we teach, and it, uh, it's designed to drive people a little crazy. And what you do is, like right now we're talking, and as you listen, your face is changing. There are areas of tension that are building up, uh, and you're taking on a particular mask. So what I have my students do is to pause after each sentence that they say when they're listening to the other person and consciously relax their face and let go of all of that tension over and over and over again until that becomes the standard to go back to that sense of calm uh, perspective. And that reflects on the inner as well as the outer. Hmm. And if you do it well enough, uh, you will never need Botox. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we're laughing, but that's actually totally true. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you I, know? Mean, I will be 70 in my next birthday. Right? That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Case Video <in> <laughs> not being recorded. We'll just say Mushtaq, while, while gray, is not wizened. Yes. His no. skin is smooth. He is smooth. not yeah. not wrinkled for a man of his age at all. So talk a little bit more about what you mean by the work, because I have a feeling there's some folks that are listening to this conversation that don't quite cotton. Okay. That's a term I, I basically, I mugged Gurdjieff and stole it from him. Uh, and it is the process by which you move from a mechanical, habituated, conditioned, asleep being to an awake being, giving up your conditioning uh, and finding your sense of actual presence. Easy. 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 Totally Simple. easy. Yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe what an awake being is? Somebody who is able to exist in the present moment somebody who is not the victim of their own conditioning, who can respond rather than react. And there's, there's nothing particularly magical about it. I mean, I can say to you guys right now, hey, check inside and see if you're awake or asleep. Right? And you look in there and you go, oh, I'm awake. And for that moment, you are. And it's just a matter of getting you to be there more than the other place. And of course, then you slip back to, to the other place, you know, the, the place of 
a sleep conditioning the moment that any stress is put on your being. You know, I go, your mama wears combat boots and all of a sudden you're, you know, back in your, uh, the, the state of, of that. And then you just have to go, relax your face and go, am I awake or asleep? And find that awake place. You do that a few hundred thousand times and eventually you're more awake than asleep. So there's like nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. There's Practice nothing, particularly, long enough. there's nothing particularly secret about this. Um, I am not special for knowing this. Never trust anybody who's special. Yeah. Anybody can do this. So other than relaxing your face at mm -hmm. the end of every sentence, what are some of the, the sort of fundamental exercises or practices or explorations that you might offer to somebody who is interested in investigating their own awakeness and asleepness? The very first thing we say, which means breathe consciously, awareness in breath. It's the first thing that you do that gets you back connected to your body. And by doing that, you get to be a little bit more awake. And again, just like that sense of awakeness, you'll lose your breath and then you have to pick it up again and you'll lose it and you pick it up. And by this point, everybody is probably getting the idea that uh, a lot of practice is involved in this. Massive amounts of grunt work, nothing particularly special, nothing secret. You just do the work. Yeah, it sounds like it takes a remarkable amount of uh, concentration and some steadfastness to keep returning to whatever the, these, I mean, like with either paying attention to the breath or relaxing the face, these are the kinds of things that given that it's so easy to lose that thread, you know, you've got to keep getting back on the horse, so to speak, yeah? Yeah. It, it sounds like that's why um, martial arts goes hand in hand with that because you know to to learn or be you know gain any sort of level of competence with that you, you need to continuously repeat and repeat and repeat and then you're just you know then you're just doing a rhythm you're just doing a movement over and over and then you have to realize oh i have to breathe still and then you you know mm -hmm. create some you give it life and then you, you add a whole nother level to all of that muscle memory that you just you know practice oh yeah and there is nothing I know of that will get you into the present moment faster than somebody trying to punch you in the face. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's it's uh, remarkably awakening. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a, a movement practice that we haven't done that for a long time, and I and I know because I used to do that, I can feel that lacking. You know. Yeah. That, yeah, immediacy, you know, there's got to be a little element of danger or something. You know what I mean? It's one thing yeah. to swing a sword around and not want to cut anybody or yourself, but it's another thing to have somebody swing something at you and make sure you don't get cut. <laughs> yep. So, Or even if it's a blunt blade, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can pretend like it's sharp. You can act as if it's real. And that will also give you that same sense. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to the folks that, um, and there's a lot of folks like this, 
especially in internal martial arts communities who who have a frame that you don't actually want to do too much combative work because it can create tension patterns and stress and it's not really very realistic and it's there's no way to really have it scale to what it's like to be in a fight and so it's just better to you know engage with the movement principles until they become natural and trust that the training you know as you I clear see. out the obstructions you, you know where i'm going with this right like yes. this is a, a stance that's pretty well thought out i say go to youtube and look up all of the places where the tai chi master gets in the ring with the young <laughs> mma fighter and gets his ass handed to him there's a reason for that and the reason is the old Tai Chi master never bothered to mix it up with anybody uh, who would give him the kind of uh, somatic feedback that he needs to know if his techniques will work. Mm. Any of those guys or their students, if they trained like they were doing MMA, they would be able to hold their own against any of those guys. Mm-hmm. But they don't. And so they end up being horribly embarrassed. You know, remember, uh, who was it who said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face? I don't know. It was uh, I, I a great boxer. experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I say to them, you know, if your martial art does not have within it the techniques that it needs to... Uh, deconstruct the tension after a sparring match, you may want to find another martial art. Yeah. Or for God's sake, at least take up yoga as an adjunct to it. Right. Because yes, fighting will make you tense until you learn to be relaxed in the fight. And good internal martial arts will teach you how to be relaxed in the fight. But you do not get to be, um, a good martial artist in the sense of being able to meet uh, complete uncooperation unless you practice that. Yeah. And I've had this experience a lot. One of the arts that I do is Tai Chi and I love Tai Chi sword. And the number of times where I've had somebody who was an instructor come to train with me in Tai Chi sword. And I, you know, I take a guard and I say attack. And they look at me like, what? What is this word? I do not know this word. They're completely unable to use that form that they have been practicing for 20 years to actually fence with. And it, uh, it tends to be revelatory. And then in the cases where this has happened, I have taken them and slowly taught them how to actually fence with their jan. And it completely changes their form, which is I've always found interesting. Does it tend to change it in similar ways or it changes each person's form in in different ways? It tends to change it in similar ways because all of a sudden they know what the hell they're doing. Right. And their sequence of movement will, uh, the emphasis of it will shift. Mm. Most Tai Chi people think it's step, then move. I can tell Ah. you... uh, with absolute assurity, if you do that against a sword, you're going to get cut because you're walking into the other guy's blade. Right. So you have to realize that the forms were actually move the blade, then step. 
And when you see that in the form, it changes the understanding of the form completely. Uh, and yet the form from the external will look almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can always tell someone doing I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that I know, but I can always tell someone doing um, some kind of forms or basics, doesn't matter, and they've they've never taken or received a punch. Because there's something, you know, it's the the mind follows the yeah. the chi follows the mind. So wherever you put your intention, that's where the chi is going to f- flow. And so if you don't have intention behind this, or you're especially when you're stepping, you know, you're trying to draw somebody who's pulling you. Like <laughs> he, you know, there's a big difference between the sort of beautiful dancer kind of movement yeah. and someone who's. <laughs> You're, you know, who's actually had to pull someone larger than off of them, you know? Yeah. 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 So I guess I'm an advocate of not all the time, but at least uh, as one eighth of your training, mixing it Mm -hmm. up with uncooperative opponents. Yeah. It's one of the things that I really appreciate about um, Sistema methodology, at least in the Rebko Vasilev approach as it's been expressed in Canada and the U S is that there's the physical interaction and physical contact as being in, in partner work as being one of the basic fundamental aspects of every class really helps kind of um, demystify and also condition in, and I think a positive way how to work with that and not, you know, because Sistema is so much about understanding your own reactivity, right. That you're, starting from a calm place, getting activated and learning how to recover and Mm -hmm. sort of training that process in a variety of ways with a variety of different stimuli, including people being uncooperative or including, you know, scaling up the intensity of strikes or kicks or wrestling, you know, in such a way that you start to play at the edge of what feels comfortable or reasonable. Um, You know, it can, you have to have a good group of people who really trust each other to do it in a safe way. But when you do, and the person who is leading the the inquiry, you know, teaching the class, so to speak, knows how to work that space, it can be really transformative on a lot of levels, certainly in terms of cultivating a greater combative sense, but also given that, you know, and kind of circling back to what you started this with Mushtaq and talking about how working with the body and working in a martial context is allowing us to see places where we're not present, right? And where we have habituation, that getting to see that in terms of like our own reactivity, um, our own fear response, and learning how to work with that in real time has been profoundly transformative in my experience. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Sistema is, is really good for that. They, uh, in the formation of their art, the Russians use some really solid scientific principles in, in what they were doing. And they threw out the stuff that didn't work. Yeah, it gets right to the problem solving part, right? Like, yeah. you know, in some ways you can look at any physical encounter, whether it's in a combative context or you know, whatever your movement situation is potentially as being a riddle, right? Or, I mean, I'm not really a big fan of framing things as problems, but like, you know, sort of you have this set of uh, challenges that you have to negotiate and navigate. And so how how do you 
do that? What's what are all of the different ways that you might be able to approach this uh, in the calmest manner possible? You know, or when you get activated, to be aware of that so that you know how to work with that process in yourself. Do you ever have any sort of exercises when you're do- when you're working with any of your groups or volunteers that um where they're just not getting concepts or they're trying to work through some lesson and they're just not getting it and then you do something physical? Uh, frequently. Yeah. When my, uh, I have a, a group of students that are from Australia and I ended up with them because they came out to America to meet somebody who wasn't around. So I, sort of took them under my wing and and did three days with them. And it was a a constant here, let's sit down and talk with this. Now let's get up and move around. Now let's work with each other and see if we can see the physical analog of this principle and that sort of thing. I am a great believer in you have to learn through the body as well as the mind. So most of the work that, in fact, I would say all of the work that I know you through has been online Um, because you live in California and I live in North Carolina. Um, how do you, in terms of the way that you're working in an online context, how do you bridge that seeming gap between the virtual and the physical? That is a difficult challenge. And I have done things like, you know, do exercise videos, you know, do physical Mm -hmm. videos, you know, postural reset and all of that sort of thing for people. But this is just a holding space. Right. You know, when the plague is over, Noor and I are going to find a retreat center somewhere Mm -hmm. in the world where we can go and people can actually come out to us once or twice a year and spend a week or two weeks doing the physical stuff as well as the, the mental stuff and the emotional stuff. That's the plan anyway. I like that plan. Yeah. We haven't been able to decide on the right place yet, though. So. Yeah. Are there specific um, things you're looking for in a retreat center? Or? Yeah, it should, not, it should not be in a place that burns down every year. So California is straight out. Uh, it needs to have enough room, but it needs to have access to the big city. Because... Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I spent all of my time in the woods or as much as, as I could. I would live up in the Santa Cruz Mountains and things like that. Uh, but as I get older, I enjoy the creature comforts and, and uh, you know, being able to get to an airport and fly someplace or have a really good meal out and that sort of thing. So relative safety from the inevitable disasters that cr- climate change will bring. Uh Plus, so Minnesota. Um, that's a possibility. I mean, I used to live in Michigan, and it's not terribly affected by climate change in the ways that you see down south. Yeah. I mean, they don't have as much snow, but they aren't going to run out of water because they've got them humongous Great Lakes all around. That's them. right. Yeah. The only trouble with Minnesota is that Cold. the mosquitoes are the size of, of DW buses. Really? Like up yeah. in the 10,000 Lakes region and stuff? Yep. Yeah. I never thought about it. I'm so used to thinking about mosquitoes down in my neck of the woods or yeah. further south. 
that I didn't actually realize that far north they were as beastly as it sounds like oh, they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mosquitoes managed to uh, find a way to live just about anywhere. God likes mosquitoes better than he likes humans. I'm pretty sure. Clearly. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the plan right now. Uh, but mostly, you know, the ability to teach online has been a real boon to us because we have students all over the world. Yeah. And it's nice to be able, be able to do that. This is the first time in the history of humanity where that can reasonably be done. Do you think once all this is all over, you'll continue to do the online? Uh, yes, because I was doing it okay. before the plague happened. So I forget how long it's yeah. been. So, <laughs> like, yes. It, well, I mean, you, it you seems could like basically forever, have done yes. like a, almost a whole master's degree or a doctoral degree or something online now in the in the span of this. So it seems like I don't know. Um, you know, Taryn is always doing something so i don't know if he's been doing this like just started this during quarantine or if he's been doing this for years but um uh, we were hanging out before the plague happened okay. so. yeah considerably before the plague happened yeah. we started hanging out in at the end of 2018 beginning of 2019 yeah. and then hung out really solidly for through like the start of the plague, had a little break, and then more sporadically during the plague. Because my life, sort of like this, the spaces in my life radically shifted when I started homeschooling half the week and working the other half of the week. I suddenly had much less time for uh, grown-up <laughs> kinds of inquiries yep. <laughs> or conversations. <laughs> Mushtaq and I used to talk in the daytime. Oh. Um, and I used to listen to talks that from the nine-sided circle on the way to and from taking Mata to school. Uh, right. Uh, so homeschooling is awesome, but it has definitely shifted how much interesting stuff I can listen to. Eventually you get to the point where you can listen together. Yeah. At some yeah. point. That'd be cool. That will be cool. Do you work with a certain demographic at all, or is it? Or do you or do you have programs for specific demographics, or like troubled youth, or mm, anything like that? Or no, okay. Troubled youth uh, have been a part of what I do, uh, but it's it's more like something I fall into. Mm -hmm. uh, years ago, when I was uh, living with my teacher, we lived together on the. I used to call it the cult compound. Uh, and his sons had all of these friends who were basically skateboard punks. And they ended up hanging out uh, with me and uh, decided that they wanted to learn to do cool stuff. Like uh, they wanted to learn to use swords. And so I started uh, getting them to make padded swords and teaching them how to use them. And then they would do crazy things with them. Like uh, once a month, at least they would do what they called ninja night where they would stalk each other through the schoolyards, leap out and cut each other down. And then they, uh, they got this giant inflatable basketball thing. Um, 
and they were they they created what they called ninja ball, which is getting the basketball through the hoop only with your swords. Oh, yeah, that's kind of kind of practical in some ways. Yeah, it's super impressive sword work. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was impressed. Uh, they were yeah. a great group of kids, oh. and they all ended up growing up to be impressive men as well. It was all nice. guys. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mushtaq, are there things at the moment, either in your own uh, practice or your own, or your teaching, that are kind of like most compelling to you, that are in the forefront of what you're contemplating, inquiring into, working with? Hmm. Um, that you'd be willing to talk about would be the caveat to that. Yeah. Uh, one of the most important things that uh, is part of our teaching is how to properly use the Enneagram, which is uh, something that uh, G.I. Gurdjieff made popular uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and then is now a cult, uh, not a cult thing, but a, uh, uh, it's somehow gotten pop turned icon. into this, yeah, personality uh, pop psychology thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to be a little bit hard on, on folks who do this, though it's unfair of me to do so because some of them put a lot of thought and work into it. But there is the original way that the Enneagram was used, which is as a pre-electronic computer for process. You can take any process and map it out on this diagram and go, oh, here's where the problems are going to happen. Here's what I need to know here. Here's what I need to know there. And it makes the process a lot better. So that's an important part of what we do. And the other important part of what we do is, uh, I think, the idea of community building. Because uh, the the basic unit of the work is is not necessarily the individual, but his circle or her circle or their circle. So let's talk a little bit more about this earlier version of the Enneagram and what it means to be able to map process onto a pre-mechanical, pre-digital computer. Because that, I mean, I know a little bit about this having studied with you, but I'm pretty sure that most people that are listening to this conversation don't. And it's super fascinating. (laughs) So I think it would definitely merit explaining a little more because I remember the first time I heard that I didn't have any idea what any of that meant, even though I understood all the words, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and especially if you have some familiarity with the Enneagram as a personality inventory, there's a, you know, does not compute moment that might be happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that uh, often happens. Uh, Yeah. So what can I say about it, especially since nobody can see what we're doing because it helps to have the diagram. It certainly does. Uh, we can would... put a diagram in the show notes, so there can certainly be an image. Um, how many people will actually be listening to this in a space where they can stop and look at the image is a different kind of question. Yeah. But... Well, maybe you just put in the show notes, mm. uh, go to our YouTube channel and look at the 40 Enneagram videos we've done. Yeah, we can put that too. Yeah. But the, the basic idea is that um, all processes will follow a general pattern. And that pattern will have a couple of points where the process uh, retards. 
is what the word that Gurdjieff used, which is to say it is slowed down or pushed back. And if you know that that's going to happen, you can kind of calculate when it does. And you can also know what to do to get through that point. Because if you, if you let that point break you down, if you let it break down the process, then you acquire more inertia, I like to say. It becomes more difficult to do the process the next time. Um, Exponential retardation, is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. So uh, the, the process that we always use and teach first is the process of feeding the community. Uh, because food is important. Sufis like food. So in order to feed the community, you have to have the kitchen. And you would put the, the kitchen up there on point one. Point zero slash nine is, is at the top, and that's the purpose, which is sustaining the community. Point one, you have the kitchen ready for work. That means in order for the kitchen to, to be able to be useful, everything has to be cleaned. Everything has to be in its proper place. Then the chef can walk in and begin at point two, pulling things out to get ready to cook. Now, point three is the first shock. It's the first place where everything retards. And, and we say here, food enters. Food comes in from a different process, comes in from outside of this process. If you don't get the food, you don't get the meal. If you get the wrong food, you don't get the meal. So you, you have to craft that moment where the food comes in in such a way that the right food is developed at the right time. Then you get to point four. Point four is where you do your prep work. You're doing your mise en place. You're getting everything set up to cook. You know, you're chopping the vegetables and bringing out the spices and, and everything is in its proper place. Between point four and five, there is a very special place that we call the equator. Once you pass this, you cannot undo the process. And this is the point where you begin applying heat to the food. You cannot uncook the food. And this is very important to realize. So... This is the area of most attention is when the food is beginning to cook. And that's at point five. Point six, the community enters. Second shock, yeah? Second shock. No community. You just have a bunch of food sitting on the stove. <coughs> point seven, the meal is served. And it has to be served in a, a, an appropriate way. You can just slop everything out in bowls, or you can actually plate the meal or allow people to plate themselves, but have everything looking good, smelling good. All of that process of sitting in front of really good food takes place there. Then, you know, at point eight, the community eats. And then you go back to nine uh, for the next cycle of this. That is an overview of going around the circle. There's all of this stuff that goes on inside the circle, which is way beyond the scope of this talk. But that just gives you a sense of how you might plot out a process. When we cross the equator and we go to point five and we're talking about the application of heat, um, 
how is it different to apply heat, which seems to me to be energy from the outside um, versus the community entering in terms of the shock point versus the application of heat in the crossing of the equator. I, I, and I recognize that heat and the community are different things, but like, I guess my question is how is the application of heat not uh, its own kind of shock where something's coming in from outside the process? Uh, because the stove is part of the kitchen. Okay. That's fair. That's, that would be the basic answer. And you look at all of the other quality, though it's a good question. Uh, you look at all of the other qualities, uh, like in the, the Enneagram of the work. At this point, this mm -hmm. is the, what we call the dark night of the soul, where you do right. the, the, the struggling and such. It's the place of, of the greatest work and, where, and the place that needs the most attention. In, in it being the place of the greatest work, is it potentially the place of the greatest transformation or is that jumping? No, it is the place of transformation, period. Okay. Five is where the transformation really happens. Got it. I mean, think about it. Up until that point. Um, do it. Yeah. It, it's still raw food. And yes, there are some raw foods that you can eat, mm -hmm. but uh, there's a lot that you can't or you don't want to. So this is the point where if we were using um, caterpillar to butterfly, we'd be in chrysalis at five? Yes. That was that actually brings up the other thing that I was thinking in terms of the heat. I was thinking in a spiritual context, we might be talking about tapas, yeah, right? Yeah, he locked like up. Internal heat. Did I? Start your, start your question again. <laughs> I was saying in a... In a spiritual context, looking at five, I, w I was wondering if we might be thinking of internal heat, like tapas. Yes. Right? So that, you know, and, and since we're talking about the chrysalis and the transformation within the chrysalis happens from the inside out as opposed to a cocoon, right? Which happens from yep. the outside in. It's just sort of like bringing different kinds of consonant phenomenon together, which of course, not to overstate the point, is exactly what we're talking about doing with the Enneagram, right? Is mapping any process onto this system so that we can have a deeper understanding of that process, right? And that processes, as Mushtaq was saying, seem to have patterns and structures that they tend to follow, right? Yes. And it's my contention that if you're clever enough, you can map any process on the Enneagram. The note being, if you're clever enough. There are... To say it again, there's lots of resources available for free on YouTube that can, for folks that are interested, that you can really dive into and get a much broader and deeper understanding of this. Yeah. Go um, to our YouTube like, channel and look at the playlist. At yeah. Look point, at the playlist of Enneagram. Yeah. You'll find more than you ever wanted to know for free. You don't have to pay $1,000 to take a course on it. And so the, being that the other um, big piece of the work the other focused on is community building, mm -hmm. how do these two things interact? Um, because I imagine that they do. They do. Uh, you can use the Enneagram to make sure that your community building is solid because you're, you can lay out the processes that you have to go through. And that helps. 
course, it, the Enneagram is not an end-all and be-all, though it's very important. But, yeah, uh, the, the sense of, if you work really hard, you grow. If you want to grow even faster, work in community. You know, where everybody has the same intent, even if you don't get along with some people. Perhaps sometimes that's even better. If you don't get along with everybody, you get to deal with your own stuff. And if you can resolve that to uh, a higher order, that's all to the good. I don't know a lot of Gurdjieff stories, but one of the ones that I heard a long time ago that has stuck with me is that at some point when Gurdjieff had a community, there was one particular character who everybody just hated. He was a constant thorn in everyone's side, pain in the ass, like just disagreeable and difficult. And people would always be like, dude, kick him out. He's just making this not work, right? Or the harmony of our community is totally thrown off. And Gurdjieff would kind of just not really respond or be like, oh, no, you know, it's it's all good. We're, we're everybody's working. You know, everyone has a place. And one time when he was traveling um, at a certain point, Gurdjieff was gone for a couple of weeks. Midway through, the guy just threw up his hands and he was like, I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving. And he took off. And everybody was so happy. And Gurdjieff came back and he was like, you know, where's our guy? And folks were like, oh, he took off and we're just so grateful. And Gurdjieff like got very upset, jumped in his car and went chasing after the guy and brought him back. And what folks, you know, ostensibly came to understand is that, you know, he was an instrumental part of the community because he was in fact keeping people uncomfortable enough that they're actually dealing with their shit as opposed to just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like convincing themselves that they were all doing this incredibly powerful level of work. But just like in the martial part of the conversation we've been having, there was no one who was uncooperative, right? Without this dude who was yeah. constantly uncooperative. Um, I don't know yep. if it's true or not, but it's, it, has if it always struck true, me as a really good teaching story. Yeah. If it isn't true, it's completely feasible yeah. that he would do something like that because that guy would provide the friction that made the heat so that the people could cook themselves. So it, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me at all. Yeah. Not someone who was known for being an easy teacher to work with. Oh, no. He was, uh, he definitely did everything the, the hardest possible way that could be done. Yeah, you know, it's like when he was writing his book, especially when he was writing Balzabub's Tales, he would have a chapter that he just finished read out loud to his group. And if they understood if they understood it too quickly and too easily, he would go back and rewrite it to make it more obscure. What do you think about that as a teaching stratagem, Mushtaq? I think that that probably worked really, really well in early 20th century Russia. I, I mean, would not do that myself. That is given not his legacy, what it must have worked well, today. considering how much influence his students have had on you know various things in the world. So that's fair. That's totally fair. I'm sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. You were saying you would not do it today. Yeah, no. Um, the thing about the work is that the work has to be crafted for three things: per people, the place and the situation. So what works in St. Petersburg in the middle of World War I is not gonna work 
in Berkeley, California in uh, 2021. And that this is important to remember. Right now, the Gurdjieff work is a museum piece. It's not living anymore as much as people would like to think that it is. It, it came, it did its thing, it ended, and it left. And that's what the work does. We, we were just talking about this the other day. The school is not going to survive me in the way that it is. You know, when Kyle takes it over, it's going to be different because she's not me. And when she passes it on, it will also be different or she won't pass it on. And it seems that's like important this to realize is... is that every single school. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it seems like this is not the usual MO for spiritual traditions. Yeah, which is how you get religions and stuff. The work will sustain itself as long as there are human beings. But it changes and transforms with the needs of each generation. And what it needs now is totally different I, than what it needed then. You know, back in... Uh, the early 1900s, the work needed somebody who could take on an authoritarian position. Now, that is poisonous and toxic to the work. In and terms so of we, the, uh, go ahead. I was going to ask in terms of um, people, time. What was the third one? Was it place? People. Place and situation. People, place, and situation. So given that you have an international community of students, mm -hmm. do you find that the, um, the difference in place and situation based on where folks are impacts the way that the school is organizing itself or... Yeah, there, there are times when I have to, to say something in three different ways to make sure mm. that everybody gets it. Yeah. But mostly it's it, it subsists on that level where you might need to reframe, but it's not that people are actually needing substantively yeah. different approaches. Yeah, because the, the, the most important thing is uh, the people, you know, and mm -hmm. the people who self-select for hanging out with us. We don't select people. They come to us. Right. Uh, and, you know, the people who self-select to hang out with us are of a particular type. Mm -hmm. And they're the type that we need, which I find infinitely amusing. <laughs> and so the people in this case are uh, more important than, than the place. The place is no longer a physical location like St. Petersburg. The place is mm -hmm. a virtual location where we create uh, a temporary autonomous zone on the internet. Get together, hang out, do stuff, and then it disappears. It's ephemeral. And the situation is is the thing that really brings people together because it's a situation where the world is uh, sedimenting more rapidly than it ever has in my lifetime. You know, you look around Sail and you see you see the some some weird situations that are happening. 
you know, in America, we have QAnon, which asks its uh, adherents to live in a complete fantasy world. You have similar uh, things happening like in the, in the former Soviet Union, especially in Russia, where there are fantasy worlds that a whole chunk of the population are living in. And, you know, it, things like this have happened before. They will happen again. But right now we are in a place where uh, the strictures put upon human beings are greater than they have been in my lifetime. And consciousness is way more sedimented than I have ever seen it. What does it mean for consciousness to be sedimented? Uh, rigid, unable to think outside of its own uh, presuppositions, having a very, very mm. strong reality tunnel. So, you know, you have the QAnoners and they had Pizzagate, right? With the vampire lizard people, cannibals, preying upon children in the basement of the, this, this pizza place. When we discovered that the pizza place does not, in fact, have a basement and is just a pizza place, they do not change what they think. They just make up an excuse for why, why they're still right. There's nothing new about this, but it's being done at an intensity that is unusual. Religions have done this forever. I mean, I remember... As a kid, my mother had a book that some Jehovah's Witness gave her. And in it, it had the predictions about when the end of the world was going to happen. And we were already past that date and the world had not ended. But the Jehovah's Witnesses didn't go, oh, we were wrong. They just came up with a reason why they were right, but the number was wrong. Mm. Like when the Mayan long count was the wrong, it wasn't really 20. Yeah. December mm -hmm. 12, 2012. It's a different day. Like when people realized that the Mayan long count didn't mean the end of the world. It just meant you started a new calendar. Right. And the end of something and the beginning of something yeah. else because yes. it was a circle. Yes. Yeah. I've lived through, I think, about seven ends of the world now. Mm-hmm. I want to. I, I'm, I want to collect a full dozen in my lifetime. What do you? Uh, what do you think is driving the acceleration of sedimented reality tunnel adherence that we're seeing? I think these it's days? a bunch of different things. One of which is that in the last forty years, education has changed to the point where people are not even remotely taught to think critically anymore. When I was in college, in order to graduate in most majors, you had to have at least two semesters of critical thinking. And I don't see that as a requirement anywhere now. I don't think that people actually even know what critical thinking is. I think that mostly folks just think it means criticism of things with your mind. As no, opposed critical to thinking practice. is... Uh, a form of, of thought discipline. Yeah. Yes. Where you can 
see where specifically where your method of thinking is off. So when you make a, a logical fallacy in your thoughts, you go, oh, that's a logical fallacy and you change it. And you see logical fallacies in other people's thoughts and you go, oh, that's a logical fallacy. I can't believe that person. But we love our logical fallacies. Right now in politics, the most popular logical fallacy is called the tu quoque fallacy. And that means, what about him? You know, the this politician has been caught doing something sleazy. And instead of saying, yeah, he was caught doing something sleazy, you say, what about this politician from the other side? He did this too, or he did this other sleazy thing. As if that excuses the first politician. And nobody catches on that two wrongs do not make a right. And if you were to actually ask these people, so does that mean you should excuse this guy from doing what he did? Ah, there you go. <laughs> what is that from? They are just, in fact, a deck of critical thinking cards from a company that oh, come on. <laughs> produces such things. Behind me is a cognitive bias codex. They're I love awesome. that. Homeschool toys. Yeah, I love that. Brilliant. I was send me the link for that. So, the fact that people have difficulty thinking, I think, uh, adds to it. The fact that the people who want to be our leaders hold their power through uh, fostering fear in their constituents is another part of it. Because fear is like the stupidest emotion you can have. Your whole you you get really dumb when you're afraid. I mean, I hate to put it all in one thing, but it's mostly social media. That certainly adds to it, but it started way before there was a social media. You can track this back to Reagan. This was how Reagan took over America, or the the people who backed him. I, I consider Reagan virtually just a sock puppet, puppet for those who mm -hmm. were behind him. But that's where you started getting the fear fostered. And there was no, the social media of that day was radio. Yeah. And before he was president, he was governor of California and did the worst job ever <laughs> in that position. He was a terrible, was a terrible actor too. How long uh, was he governor for? <laughs> he was a terrible actor too. Yeah. God, did he do two terms? I think he may have done two terms. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah, because he, he had found the way to play the media and the, the, the thought forms of the, the people in the country. That's where you get like Rush Limbaugh before he ever had anything on the Internet, had a radio program and a TV show. And he was all about how cool Reagan was. And he had no sense of being able to say anything rationally. It was all just uh, appeal to emotion. There's another uh, logical fallacy there for you. Go. You know, creating the us and them. Mm -hmm. and, and people are disaffected, and rightly so. You know, middle America, you know, when you look at the middle states, they have been abandoned by the government to a great extent. And, you know, the corporations have come in and gobbled up all the family farms mm -hmm. and all the ranches and all of that kind of stuff. So people are disaffected because their government did not take care of them. 
And so it was easy to move them to a place where people said, hey, we have the answer here and it's all them damn liberals. So vote for us and we will save you. And they didn't. There's a really long history of this particular type of struggle in the U.S., right? I mean, it goes back essentially to the founding of the country, and we've seen various iterations of it throughout, right? The existence of the the party system in the United States and this trend of folks that have more money, resources, power, wanting to frame things in such a way that the people that don't are trying to take what's theirs and that government is the problem because government's going to allow these, you know, people that don't look like me and don't talk like me and aren't me basically um, to get what's mine. Like my reading of what Reagan did is he brought back this kind of argument that, you know, uh, FDR with the changes that he made in the country kind of like was another big shift in the other direction of that. And that the, the folks that would now be thought of as the Republicans, you know, the antecedents of what we see today were fomented then because those folks who were already in the kind of 1% bracket were trying to figure out a way to recalibrate that balance away from government as a force for equity, at least a potential force for equity. I'm not suggesting that I think that everything FDR did was awesome. I'm just saying that there was a big, you know, we've seen these kinds of uh, revolutions in the political system in the U.S., right? Though um, it does seem we're in a pretty extreme moment these days. Yeah, we are. And a lot of things have led up to it. And there's not a lot that we can do to to find a quick fix. In part... You know, between uh, the 60s and uh, the 70s when Reagan took over, um, there was a huge shift in the political parties where the Democrats became Republicans and the Republicans became Democrats. And people don't realize that this shift happened. And it was mostly because of the civil rights movement. You know, Southern Democrats were a bunch of racist sons of bitches. And they didn't like all of a sudden having people who they looked down upon be treated equally. And so they fled the Democratic Party and the Republicans said, come over here. We want the power that we'll have if if you join us. And then all of the liberals left the Republican Party and joined the Democrats. That's, of course, simplistic, but basically what happened. So do you have thoughts on things that folks can do. I mean, certainly we've touched on things that individuals can do within their own experience and their own practice to work on deconditioning, becoming less habituated. So, you know, less sedimentation in one's own consciousness. And I'm not uh, suggesting necessarily with this question that like, you know, go out on the streets and bang people's heads into each other and insist that they think for themselves. But do you have thoughts on um, ways in a more public? No, because that's (laughs) never going to work. Um, Ways in a community setting that we can work in such a way that we might be able to help facilitate more critical public discourse, more 
reason in public discourse. Yeah. And this is not necessarily part of the work. This is just yeah. my general opinion, which is study critical thinking. Apply it to yourself first. Then apply it to any politician who is speaking. Listen to what they say and find the logical fallacies in their arguments. Challenge them on those. And if they cannot come up with an actual argument that holds water, don't vote for them. I don't care what side they're on or they pretend to be on because they're all on the same side. That's my, my personal take is they're mm. all on the side of people who want power. But teach critical thinking to your kids. Get some of them critical thinking cards. It's like the best thing you can do for yourself is to learn how to actually think and learn how to stop your emotions from rising up and taking control of you. Study a little general semantics. So gentlemen, I think we're we're yes. we're coming into the landing phase of this conversation. So Mushtaq, are there things that you're interested in speaking to? Are there um things that you feel like we've touched on that you want to revisit? Are there resources you want to talk about? Yes. No new book coming out. No old book coming out. Yeah, right now. Well, actually, we do have a book coming out, but not in the near future. Uh, I'm, we're writing a book on uh, the Enneagram and the Tarot and how they fit together. Ooh. Yeah, very spooky. Very good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, so th that'll be happening sometime before the end of the year, I hope I found uh, the perfect artist to illustrate the cards in the way that I, I want being done. And we're, we're going to town on that one. So you're going to have a deck that is part of that project as well. Yeah. It, it would be awesome. no fun if there wasn't a deck. Yeah. Agreed. But you know, nonetheless, I know you like the thought deck, yeah. so I thought maybe, you know, you're going to. Yeah. I that. do like the thought deck, but it, it has problems too. Agreed on that front as well. Yeah. Yeah, all of the, the modern decks have problems. You have to go back to the Tarot of Marseille before you find the way it was originally laid out. But be that as it may, uh, eventually we're going to have that out. Uh, other than that... Yeah, and, and that for me has aesthetic problems. Yeah. Yeah, other than that, uh, there are lots and, and lots of resources for doing the work out there. Not just us. We're, we're just one of many people who I consider are actually doing the job. And so if you're interested, find somebody with whom you are compatible. You know, it's like there are lots of enlightened folks out there. And they're all, uh, you know, some of them are actually teaching. And so you can go and uh, find the person who you resonate with and hang out with them for a while don't send them all your money if they want all your money they're probably no good they'll just yes. be enlightening your pocketbook <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. and if you like what we do you know the the best way to get involved in that is join us on social media um the the two places to do that are on youtube and we have quite the conversations these days uh, on the comments on our videos. 
and uh, on Facebook, hmm. where you can actually, you know, post questions, hang out with like-minded people and unlike-minded people. So, Mishtak, I'm super grateful that you took the time to talk with us. It's been too long since we've had the opportunity to, to shoot the shit, and it's always a total pleasure to get to hang out with you. Yeah. So I have my gratitude and my appreciation for this conversation and for all of the work that we've done and all the work that you do and you and Noor do together. It's really a, a great benefit to so many beings. So thank you very much. It's entirely my pleasure to do so. <laughs> <laughs>